0: Join with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 through 39. Last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we saw the marks of those who would be judged. This week, in this part of the book of Hebrews, we'll see the marks of those who will be saved. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, the marks of salvation. Give attention to God's holy word. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. You had compassion on me in my chains, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise.
1: For yet a little while, and
0: he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe. To the saving of the soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that you have exalted the Lord Jesus to your right hand and that you have poured out the Spirit upon your church and that you have ordained to bring his gospel and his salvation to light through the preaching of the gospel and so we ask now that during this time of preaching you by your spirit would make this The primary means of grace which you have ordained it to be And we ask you to do all of this for the glory of our Lord Jesus for it's in his name that we pray Amen Well, I have been reading with uh, my son mostly but with the other children the hobbit And if you know the story of The Hobbit, it is a great adventure story. Uh, Part of the, the point of The Hobbit, however, perhaps the main point of The Hobbit, which is why he titled it The Hobbit, is the story is really about Bilbo and what he needed to go through to find out who he was. In The Hobbit, you have comfortable maybe slightly overweight Bilbo in his comfortable hobbit hole with his warm fire and his well-stocked pantry. And then Gandalf brings him on an adventure, and it's through the course of that adventure that Bilbo's powers, gifts, skills are tested and brought into exercise. Well, likewise, the Christian life is very much the same way. The Christian life is difficult. And it is in the midst of the difficulties of this life that our faith is tested. And it's in the middle of those testings and trials that faith has to be exercised. Because as we see in this passage and all throughout the New Testament, those that are saved are those that persevere you must persevere in the Christian life if you would be saved now if you know anything about a little bit of reformed theology you're familiar with the TULIP acronym many people are familiar with this it summarizes the five points total depravity uh uh, unmerited grace, limited atonement, irresistible grace, um, and then perseverance of the saints. I think I got the U wrong, but we're focusing on the P, so don't worry about that. The P in tulip means perseverance of the saints. Now often in our day, this doctrine of the perseverance has been redefined. You hear people speaking about not the perseverance of the saints, but the preservation of of the saints this is a mistake this is a sign I believe of the effeminacy of our age now what do I mean by effeminacy what I don't mean is that women are evil by definition that's not what effeminacy means we love you ladies effeminacy is the sin of being passive when you should be active Effeminacy is the sin of not actively exercising your duties. So to change the doctrine of perseverance, which requires us to actively persevere, into the doctrine of preservation, deceives us into thinking that all we have to do is passively wait. But that's not the doctrine the Reformers gave us. That's not the doctrine the New Testament gives us. It gives us the doctrine of perseverance, the active exercise of faith. The meaning of this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, is that true saints actively through the exercise of their faith and all the virtues of the Holy Spirit persevere in the way of the gospel to the saving of their souls. Those that are truly saved persevere in their salvation, actively exercising their faith. Therefore, you must persevere. You must strive. The Lord Jesus said that violent men take the kingdom of heaven by force. He's talking about salvation. We all have to leave our hobbit hole and the warm hearth and the well-stocked pantry if we want to receive the reward. In this passage we're going to learn one of the essential elements in perseverance. Namely, an infallible assurance. Specifically, what we're going to see here is that the mar- one of the marks of salvation is that an infallible assurance of faith is an essential element In the perseverance of the saints. I'll say it again. An infallible assurance of faith is the essential element in the perseverance of the saints. We're going to see three things in this passage. First, verses 32 through 34, an infallible assurance. Verses 32 through 34, an infallible assurance. Verse 35, an essential element. An essential element in verse 35. In verse 36 through 39, we're going to see a persevering saint. Verses 32 through 34, an infallible assurance. Verse 35, an essential element. And verses 36 through 39, a persevering saint. And so we begin... With an infallible assurance. Now we need to have a definition. A definition that is good for us. Infallible, that word, means never failing. Always effective. Without the possibility of failure. We speak about God's word. It is infallible. Because God's word, it is impossible for it to err. Likewise, the assurance that we need is an infallible assurance. Listen to what Westminster Confession chapter 18 says. Westminster Confession 18, paragraph 2. This certainty, Westminster Confession 18 is about the assurance of grace and salvation. This certainty... The assurance that we are in God's favor and that we are in the estate of salvation and that Christ is ours and we are his. This certainty is not a bare, conjectural, or probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but it is an infallible assurance of grace. That's what infallible means a certainty and a confidence that God's word is true this certainty and assurance does not come from men you notice what the confession said this is not a probable persuasion based upon a fallible hope many mistake this kind of assurance as something that comes from man but this assurance does not come from man in any way Several passages we could look at. Matthew 7:21 through23. Galatians 1: 11 through 12. Paul the Apostle says in Galatians 1:11 through 12, he says, "I received the gospel not from man or by man. I received my gospel from Christ himself." That's an infallible assurance. 1 Corinthians 2 1-5 Paul speaks about his preaching of the gospel and he says I came to you when I preached the gospel not with words of human wisdom I didn't come to persuade you with fallible hopes I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God that's an infallible assurance Luke eighteen ten through 12. But I think probably the clearest passage would be Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Turn with me to Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Paul is writing, and notice the assurance that he encourages the church with. Notice how he begins in Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision brothers and sisters who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, note carefully, And have no confidence in the flesh. When the confession speaks about a probable persuasion based upon a fallible hope, that is a certainty based upon the flesh. But Paul says we are not those. We trust in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh. In the rest of the passage he talks about what it means to have confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks there's anything in the kingdom of God, I, Paul, have better credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. But Paul the Apostle says this is not enough. What things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. This is an infallible assurance, brothers and sisters. There are many who do trust in their flesh and therefore have a fallible assurance, they have a certainty that is temporary. That will fail them in the day of trial. Many trust in their good works. Many trust in their natural gifts. Many trust in their life experiences. Many trust in their ecclesiastical offices. Many trust in worldly wisdom. The Jews are the illustration of this. John 8.33, Christ tells them, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What do the Jews say? We are sons of Abraham. We have never been in bondage to anyone. They're trusting in the flesh. They're trusting in themselves. This assurance, returning to Hebrews 10, this assurance comes not from man, but from God in every single way. Notice the word that he uses here. Verse 32, Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated... The Greek word here is photizo, the days after which the light shined upon your consciences. It means to have light shine upon something. The use of this word is connected throughout the New Testament with the presence of God. Hebrew, uh, Revelation 22, five. it says that the New Jerusalem will have no need of the sun, moon, or stars for God. Illuminates it. God, same word, fotizos that city. His light sheds light upon it. This word denotes the presentation of the truth of Christ in the gospel by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit. When he speaks about being illuminated, he's speaking about the truth of Christ shining upon your souls with such power that you cannot resist it. You must confess this is the truth. That's what it means to be illuminated. Turn to Ephesians. Uh, Actually, 2 Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. That is not the right passage. Turn to Ephesians 3, 9. Pardon me. Ephesians 3, 9. Yeah, Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. Paul speaks about this illumination that God performs through the preaching ministry. Verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what Paul as a preacher is doing. He's proclaiming among the Gentiles the unsearchable glories and riches of Christ for what purpose? Keep reading. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The word to see... It's the same word we have in Hebrews, to be illuminated, that the light might shine upon them and they might believe in the Lord Jesus. This illumination, when it comes, it presses the soul to confess that the gospel of Christ is the truth of God. Think about the Damascus Road. Paul the Apostle is riding on his path of persecution and the Lord, quite literally, shines the light of the gospel upon him. And Paul is forced to say, what do you want me to do, Lord? This illumination is not always so outwardly dramatic. Your illumination will not always have those outward signs that Paul the Apostles did. But it will always be inwardly transformative. Now there might be an objection here. Hebrews 6.4. The author uses that same word. He says it's impossible for those once enlightened, once illuminated, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Well, here's, I believe, the answer. They were illuminated to the point of confessing the truth the gospel had come with such power upon their consciences that they had to confess Jesus is the Christ. But they failed to persevere. They failed to endure. You see, the gospel comes with such power. And when the Holy Spirit blesses the preaching of the gospel, all men are forced to confess that Jesus is the Christ. The demons knew who he was, and they ran in terror. In the book of Acts at Pentecost, the people are pricked to the heart, and they repent. At the preaching of Stephen, they are pricked to the heart, same word, and they stoned him. So when the gospel comes with an illuminating power, sinners are forced to acknowledge that this is the Christ. But some don't persevere. Some fall away. That's what Hebrews 6 is speaking about. Well, this illumination comes from God in verse 32 of Hebrews 10. He says, remember the days in which you were illuminated. Remember the days in which you were persuaded. Remember when you believed the gospel of Christ. And at that day... You endured trial. That's what he moves to next. And he describes some reasons or some occasions for our assurance to fail. Look at what he says. Recall the former days in which you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. Now here's another definition for you. An occasion is a circumstance or an event that presents us with a choice. An occasion is a circumstance or an event that presents us with a choice. The, The illustration of this is a very simple one that comes from ethics. Let's say you're walking down the street and you see a wallet with $100 bills spilling out of it. That's an occasion. You now have a choice. Am I going to steal or am I going to return it to its rightful owner? The author here describes occasions for our assurance to fail. Notice the word that he uses. After you were eliminated, you endured a great struggle. The King James translates this as a great fight. The Greek word here is athlasis. It's where we get the word athlete from. It's where we get the word athletic competition from means a contest or a struggle denotes meeting a difficult situation which requires the exercise of one's power that's what we admire athletes don't we 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 don't admire the ones that are average we admire the ones that are excellent because they endured greater trials this fight this this athletic competition is an internal struggle or a contest between the flesh and the spirit That's the struggle that's going on here. The internal struggle as to whether or not I'm going to believe and obey or sin and disobey. This struggle is described in various passages. Galatians 5, the spirit lusts against the flesh. These two are at war with one another. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I want to do the will of God, but I find another law in me causing me to sin. even in the life of christ though he had no sin had to fight this fight when he prayed in the garden at the point of his greatest trial he had to engage in this athletic competition and persevere in the father's will paul writes in second corinthians many different times about his trials and his tribulations and how he endured This is the common experience of all Christians. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 10, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in heavenly places, the forces of wickedness who rule over this present age. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to win this contest. If you have not been tested in this way, you will be if you are one of Christ's. Paul the Apostle says that everyone who enters the kingdom of heaven will suffer persecution. If you have not experienced this yet, you will. You need to get ready for it. You need to train for this. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 9, bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things. Train yourself to godliness. Enter into a training regimen. Just like the athlete does to compete in the Olympics, train yourself in godliness. This is done by a diligent use of the means of grace. Let me, let me just give you a, a, a brief application here at this point. Spiritual training is the same as physical training. What do I mean by that? Well, we admire the great athletes, the Olympians, because we recognize they discipline over years and years and years to train their body to perform that one amazing feat of strength or skill. But it took years and years of training to get there. It took days and months of making a choice. This is important. I'm going to train. I'm tired. I don't want to do this. I'm hungry. What's the point? Years and years of that. Your spiritual training is exactly the same. The Lord God tells you in his word that you will meet with him. The Lord God tells you that as you pray, he will commune with you. Now, there are days you don't want to pray. There are days I don't want to read the Bible. There are days I don't want to use the means of grace, but through the grace of the Spirit, He enables us, over time, making choices to train ourselves to use the means of grace. Here's the primary lesson when you use the means of grace. Self-denial. John Calvin said that our whole faith is summed up in that one command. Deny yourself. That's what's required to grow as a Christian. And you can practice it by using the means of grace. Well, he says there there are these occasions, uh, a great struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, he goes on and describes this a little bit more. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains. He, he speaks uh, specifically of the trial that they're going through. Their contest is now suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. They're made a gazing stock. They are suffering reproaches. They are going through afflictions. You know, the word afflictions is very evocative. The word means that when things are pressing on us, when things are hemming us in, and it feels like we can't get out, Many of you know the scene from Star Wars when they're in the garbage compactor and the machine is pressing the walls in. That's the word that is in Greek. Things are pressing in and it doesn't seem that there's any way of escape. Those are afflictions. Notice also that they are made companions with those who suffer. This is not merely having compassion on those who suffer, but becoming one who is persecuted himself. The illustration of this in all of these things, spectacle, reproaches, afflictions, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what he went through as he went to the cross false accusations, struck on the face, mockery. They put a purple robe on him in mockery. A gazing stock. Pilate brought him out in front of the people as he was bloodied and said, Behold the man. He was whipped. He was given a crown of thorns. He was nailed to the tree. There was more mockery at that point. They stole his clothes. He endured physical pain and death itself. Christ is the illustration of what the author is talking about here. Now these are all occasions why assurance could fail. These all present opportunities for us to make a choice. So what makes the difference? Why does assurance not fail in those that are saved? We'll look at what he says in the next part. You had compassion on me in your chains. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven true faith is what enables them to endure authentic and real faith from the holy spirit now true faith produces certain fruits we'll be a little bit briefer on this one true faith produces good works notice you had compassion on me in my chains you're going through all of these trials and the thing that they're thinking about is let's help this preacher who's in the chains Christ said in the gospels if you visited the least of these in prison you visited me true faith produces good works true faith also produces joy look at what it says you had compassion on me and my chains and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods Paul writes in Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 that we rejoice in tribulation because we rejoice in the glory of God You might be going through trials right now. You might be going through tribulation. You might be going through some kind of suffering. Let me give you some encouragement where you are right now. The way to endure is one step at a time. The surest way forward is the next duty that God gives to you. You know, I once heard an interview with a Navy SEAL. And the Navy SEAL went through the training regimen Uh, for the Navy SEAL program, famously a very difficult training regimen, though some may be more difficult than the SEALs. But one of the things they go through during Navy SEAL training is what they call Hell Week, where they they ramp up the trial on these guys. I believe they stay stay awake for five days straight. And this Navy SEAL was being interviewed, and they, they asked him, how did you do it? And he realized, they give us a break every six hours. I just had to make it six hours at a time. So they don't kill these guys. They stop them for like every six hours. And so he said, all I had to do was make it six hours at a time. I didn't have to make it the whole week. I had to make it one step at a time. It's the same way in the Christian life, brothers and sisters. Wherever you are right now, you don't have to think about reaching glory right now. You just have to think about the next step. What's the next duty God has given you? What's the next thing for you to do? This is also a good way out of depression. Many of the psychologists will say this, but it bears it out in the New Testament. You're depressed, you're sad, you don't know what to do, do something. Wash the dishes. Take the trash out. Get up and do something. And then do the next thing. And then do the next thing. And before you know it, you'll be in heaven along with the rest of the saints. True faith, it produces good works. It produces joy. But that's not the ultimate foundation. The ultimate foundation is the divine truth of the gospel. Look at what he says. You had compassion on me and my chains, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. You joyfully accepted theft. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. This refers to a deep, experiential knowledge of God's truth. This is not an intellectual knowledge. This is not a knowledge that stays in the head. This is not a knowledge of the gospel that enables you to win arguments. This is a knowledge of the gospel as our only hope in life and death that produces a calm and sincere Christian life. This is the heart knowledge of the gospel. This is not Christ is Lord, but Christ is my Lord. Not Christ is Savior, Christ is my Savior. Not heaven is the hope of glory. Heaven is my hope of glory. That's the knowledge that he's speaking about. It produces a sincere reformation of the life in accord with God's law. He says furthermore that you have a better and an enduring Substance or an enduring possession. This truth of the gospel that he's speaking about that we place our hope upon is the hope of glory. Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 5, we rejoice in hope. What do we hope in? We hope in the glory of God. Philippians, 2, uh, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says that our citizenship is in heaven and we wait for the Savior who will subdue us to himself. Titus 2, 11 through 15 says that the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to live soberly, righteously, waiting for that blessed appearing and glorious hope, the Lord Jesus. But there's a better illustration of this. Turn to Job 19. How did Job endure? The loss of children, the breakdown of his marriage. We don't know if they got divorced, but she was not much of a help to him. The loss of reputation, the loss of physical health, false accusations from his friends who should have been his greatest comforters. How did Job endure this? Job 19, verse 25. Job had an infallible assurance. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. The hope of glory is how Job endured his trials. This is the sum total of gospel doctrine, brothers and sisters. This is the one infallible promise that Christ has made you. Revelation 22 verse 20, at the very end of all scripture, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen that is how you endure by keeping your eyes on the prize the Lord Jesus himself now we need to ask ourselves is this true of us the Lord Jesus warned in the sermon on the mount many many will say to me Lord Lord Isaiah warned that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Teaching for commandments the doctrines of men. Is this true of us? If we say that we believe the gospel, why do we compromise obedience to God's law? I'm not teaching that obedience saves you. I'm not teaching that keeping God's commandments is how you earn salvation. I am saying that if you hope in salvation and you hope to meet the Lord, you'll get ready for Him. You'll do the things that are pleasing to Him. You'll want to do the things that He loves. We need to ask ourselves, if this is our hope, as John wrote in his first letter, are we purifying ourselves even as he is pure. Now I have confidence that many of you have this hope. I have confidence that many of you have this hope. Because I can tell you have no confidence in yourselves. You have no confidence in your flesh. The Spirit has convinced you that in you there is nothing worthy. that the only good thing that should happen to me is that I should die. That's what I deserve. But God has brought you to put your trust in Christ. You do not merely confess that all men are sinners. You confess that I am a sinner. And you fall upon your face before Christ for salvation having been illuminated and infallibly persuaded that Christ is the Savior of sinners. That is the faith that endures. And as the author says, this is an essential element. Look at what he says in verse 35. This is an essential element. He says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Brothers and sisters, I'll be brief at this point. I know that I was very long on the first point. I'll be brief on this point. You have need of endurance. You have need of confidence in the truth of the gospel. Things are getting harder. The world is getting more worldly. The flesh is getting more fleshly. Those that oppose Christ are opposing Him more overtly. Do not forget 2020. When they told us the worship of God is non-essential. That will get worse before it gets better. You need endurance. Do not cast away your confidence. Do not throw up your hands like so many have done and say this is not worth it. Christ is worth it do not cast away your confidence do not make the deal with the devil that many make and fall into the trap of hypocrisy listen to what John Calvin says this is from a book called God or Baal it's a very good book two letters that he wrote to some of his friends and he writes this just listen this is John Calvin But the very thing I have complained about at the beginning is obviously truer than I would wish. The the context here is that you have people still in the Roman Catholic Church they're convinced that Roman Catholics are idolaters but they hold church office. Or they live in a Catholic city. And every time they see the Mass they have to make a choice. All of these occasions they're convinced in their conscience they've been illuminated. This is wicked. Calvin writes to those. A large portion of people can gain no clear perspective on this topic, can judge nothing accurately, can decide nothing sincerely. And that while from a proper and genuine respect for divine law, they see that dangers threaten. When perplexed and dismayed by fear of those dangers, they search for a way simultaneously to keep men's goodwill and God's favor. In following this strategy, they are concerned about nothing except their own panic and blind confusion and throw everything into disorder and chaos. For it is an unspeakable outrage to subject to our own calculation what God has once decreed and marked as holy with his own voice. Likewise, the man who seeks advice from his own timidity and cowardice in matters of such great importance has left himself no hope of good outcome. From such an attitude as the saying goes, only depraved children are born. And so an equally bad plan follows this twisted calculation. With their eyes turned away from the word of God, they require of themselves nothing except what they can offer while keeping their own persons and interests safe they give themselves easy license to ignore whatever involves any danger and excessive difficulty. And in the meantime, they are totally deaf to the frightening vengeance God has decreed against those who despise his protection and abandon their post just to improve their own condition. We live in these days, brothers and sisters, we live in days where hypocrisy is probably the strongest temptation for all of us. Now Calvin gives a warning. Do not make that deal with the devil. Later on he's going to say that doesn't mean you all have to go burning down heretical churches. That doesn't mean you all have to run with your hair on fire rebuking everyone that you see. He does say you need to judge yourself based on your social station. Where are you in the society of man? And wherever you find yourself... Do your duty before God no matter what. Don't consider the danger. Hypocrisy is a great danger in these things. Well, in conclusion, we see a persevering saint. He says in verse 36, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then he quotes these two passages from the Old Testament. Notice what the promise is. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Christ is coming. Christ will return. Just as much as he promised to die for your sins... He promised to return and receive you to himself. We've been looking at John 14, 15, and 16 lately in the evening. This is how Christ opens up that whole discourse, isn't it? Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I am coming again. He who comes will not tarry, but he will return. How do we know this? Because God has promised. That's it. That's faith. And we believe in this promise. And that is how we endure. Christ says in Luke 18, 1 through 8 that men should pray and never faint. Men should always pray and never lose heart. He uses the illustration of the unjust judge and the poor widow. And the poor widow constantly praying unto the judge, get me justice. And he says, how much more will your heavenly Father avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night? He will avenge them speedily. But then Christ says this. When the Son of Man returns, will he really find faith in the earth? Luke 18.8 The faith that saves is a faith that perseveres. It's a faith that endures. He says at the very end of this passage, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Let me leave you with this illustration. The Christian life is like a great sea voyage across an ocean that you cannot see across. And in the midst of that ocean, you're in your ship sailing to meet your Savior on the other side of the world. He has promised, I'm there waiting for you. I will receive you. When you cross this ocean, you will receive glory upon glory, rewards upon rewards. Now what the author says is, we are not of those who draw back. The word is used in Greek to refer to lowering your sails. The the word is used that if the sail is out there, when you draw it back in, that's the word that he uses. He says, we are not of those who draw back, who pull down our sails when the wind is blowing. But we are those who put out more sails. Because brothers and sisters, when the winds of tribulation are blowing in your life you need to put out more sails of faith. You need to put out more cloth so that it will speed you to glory. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word we thank you for the divine truth of your promises we ask O oh lord that you would give us this infallible assurance that we all would give all diligence to make our calling and election sure so that an entrance might be supplied to us into your eternal kingdom when we pray it all for jesus sake amen